Over the last two years, you've probably heard people saying, I've done my research. But in reality, research is a lot more than a few Google searches. And the problem is, when you picture a researcher, you probably think of somebody wearing a lab coat and trying to take over the world. I'm Anna. And I'm Beck. We're two researchers wanting to break down these stereotypes in a fun way. Welcome to We've Done the Research podcast, where we chat to researchers about who they are, the amazing work they're doing, and why it's so important. So today on the podcast, you're going to meet me and Beck and hear a little bit about why we became researchers, why we're so passionate about it, and some of the things that you might hear about in our podcast this season. So Beck, this is such an exciting first episode. Oh my gosh, it is. I'm so excited to be here and to be sharing a little bit about us before we get into talking about all our amazing guests that we have on this season. And this podcast has been a long time coming now. We have been thinking about doing a podcast since sort of the moment we met, haven't we? We've been talking about it. Yeah, actually, I feel like it was one of those things that we all have always wanted to do. And just, I guess the timing hasn't been right. And I suppose with COVID, it really sort of highlighted this problem between people thinking they know what researchers do and really having no idea at all. So it really spurred that (laughs) sort of, Um, you know, passion that we have for talking to people about their research in a way that's really understandable. Like you'd talk to somebody about it at the pub or at a barbecue. Yeah, because I think one of the big problems is that when you see a researcher on the news or you see them um, in a movie, they use all these big terms that you can't understand. And you kind of think, well, who are they? How do I know that they're an expert in this field? Why should I trust them? And there's some people in the media who do such a good job of this, like Dr. Carl is very famous here in Australia. And people seem to have like a real trust for him because he's in the public eye all the time. We've gotten to know him and we know know that he knows what he's talking about. Um, But we maybe don't know that about some of these other experts that are on TV. So I think the yeah, one of the big goals of our podcast is so the audience can get to know these researchers in a way uh, where they can feel like, okay, they they do know what they're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, there's so many people out there that do such amazing work and being able to have a platform that they're able to share this research where, you know, it might not be that they'd have any other opportunity to share it in this sort of way. So yeah, and I think you'll see that in the guests that we have coming up this season. Every single person we talk to, we learned something new. And it was something interesting and amazing that they were up to and they're trying to change the world in their own little space. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we kind of wanted to kick it off by telling you a little bit about us and what we do. So I know this is a question that we ask our guests, Anna, but did you always want to be a researcher? Um, I don't think so. So my dad, um, he's a professor emeritus. He was a researcher. And I just saw how hard he worked and after hours and, and things like that. Um, and so for me, I thought, oh, that seems like too intense of a, of, of a job. I don't know. It didn't seem like it was for me. But um, I took this one psychology course in undergrad, and I ended up working as a research assistant for this for this lab that worked on memory and like reasons why we forget and um, how to sort of study that in a scientific way. And that was really interesting to me. And I also did some research on um, stroke rehabilitation, which I 
I think the brain is so interesting because um, basically after a stroke, a lot of people will lose the ability to, to use their left arm um, or their left leg, or they can't even see anything on the left side of their body. And so working um, with people who are really passionate about trying to help people who've had a stroke was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um I also did a bit of work in my master's in a um, basic science lab. So I was doing brain surgery on rats and that definitely was not for me. So I thought after that, I will never do research again. I was very allergic to the rats actually. So I'd break out in hives, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't the right thing for me. I did learn a lot there, but I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, that wasn't quite the right thing. But it wasn't until um, I moved to Australia and started working in clinical trials where I figured out, wow, you know, these research teams, their research can help so many people if it goes well. And that's sort of something I was really passionate about, helping a lot of people at once just by creating, you know, some new system in the medical field or some new way to support patients. I thought that was that got me hooked, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? I definitely did not always want to be a researcher. Um, it, I, it wasn't even something that really crossed my mind when I had finished school. Um, I really wanted to be a doctor. And yeah. so I did the very typical study medical science after school. And as much as I loved that course, I guess like it didn't really have that many career options. So yeah, I finished my um, undergrad and I worked in a pathology lab for a year or so. And being in a lab, wearing a lab coat, not being able to chat to people, it just was not my jam. Yeah, lab work can be so isolating, can it? You're, you know, you're working on your cells or you're working with your specific project and it can be very isolating. And I didn't really see like what, how what I was doing was really helping anyone else. And I suppose like that was sort of the core of me be wanting to become a doctor. And, you know, during that time while I was in the lab, I sat the GAMSAT, which in Australia is the um, test to get into medical school. Um, and I did well, but, you know, I still wasn't 100% certain. So I ended up going back to uni and studying public health as a master's degree and absolutely loved it because I kind of could see the bigger picture of you know, how what you do can sort of change the course of policy and can change all these different things. And so I suppose that's really where my passion for chronic disease prevention grew. And that was sort of the pathway that I always knew that I wanted to go down from there. And yeah, worked at a few different jobs throughout the uni and then ended up landing a job with you yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny. So Beck and I met when we were interviewing for a research assistant position. And Beck came in with this really positive attitude, smiling. And i that was my first time ever being an interviewer, actually. And I didn't really realize how much coming in with a smile and a positive attitude really has on the room. Interviews can be so scary. And it was a panel. So there was three or four of us. So I can understand why people would be very nervous. But yeah, so she, Beck ended up getting the job Woo-hoo. and ended up working with me on my research project, which was unreal. It was such a good experience. Yeah, and I think like starting to work in that space and, you know, when I took the job, it was something that was a little bit different from what I was doing previously. I was doing more project management work at a higher level 
but it wasn't really what I was passionate about. And so when I started to and was hearing about the work that Anna was doing, I was kind of like, oh, no, this is like definitely what I want to be, like the space I want to be. And I like can definitely see how what I will do will be able to help other people. And the fact that like I got to go out and talk to patients as well, like that was one of the biggest draw cards for me. I was like, oh, my gosh, I get to talk to people. This is going to be the best. <laughs> Yeah, for me, starting research, um, going up to patients was actually one of the scariest bits. It took me a little bit of time to build up the confidence to do that because, I don't know, it's a bit scary just to go up to someone and say, hey, here's the research project we're working on. Do you want to get involved? Started um, in, in clinical trials working with um, PhD student Carla Santo, who's from Brazil, and she was doing this amazing study where they were trying to figure out if having a medication reminder app on your phone could help people uh, remember to take their medication after a heart attack. Anyway, so I'd be approaching people um, in their, you know, because they have these heart disease exercise classes after they've had a heart attack. And I'd be marching up to them and saying, hey, we have this study with the app. Do you want to <laughs> do you want to join? It's only three months. So you, you just have to use the app and tell us how it goes. Um, so yeah, that was really a cool experience to kick it off. And so I guess there you've kind of given a little bit of insight into maybe a little bit of the type of work that we do but I suppose that's something that we you know want to share with our audience as well so Anna what is your research focusing on and what's the big problem that you're trying to solve? Yeah so my research has a deeply personal meaning behind it and I think um, we'll hear in this season that a lot of our researchers have a similar sort of story. Uh, my best friend Molly was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2000. 17, I believe it was. Um, and just seeing all the difficulties that she was going through, not only during treatment, but after treatment, because when a, people who go through breast cancer treatment have a lot of support during their treatment, their, their treatment team are amazing. Um, but then when they finish their treatment, they don't go back to see their treatment team maybe for a year. Um, so that gap there was a big problem. People were feeling very lonely and they were, they were scared that the cancer was going to come back and didn't know ways that they could improve their health to, to lower those chances. So our research team, led by Prof. Julie Redfern and Prof. Clara Chow, they were doing some amazing research in heart disease, sending people text messages after they had a heart attack to try and get them, you know, to keep up with healthy eating and um, physical activity and making sure, you know, their mental health was okay. And that showed some unreal results. You know, people ended up exercising more. It helped them um, lower their blood pressure and cholesterol levels uh, just by receiving four text messages per week for six months, which I don't know. It sounds crazy when you like say it like that. But, you know, I think the whole basis of, you know, doing these text messaging studies is like, you know, you're giving people little bits of information over time where it's like it's not this huge chunk of information that they have to digest at once. And that constant like reminder being like, you know, to take time for yourself and look after yourself is really important. Yeah, exactly. And that's so true because you go to these medical appointments and it can be very overwhelming the information they're giving you. And sometimes, the words that are used are are words that you might not understand. So it's the way the text message 
the text messages work is, yeah, you're right. There's just like a bit of small information here and there. And the messages are sent kind of randomly the way a friend or a family member would text you. So it's a bit of a surprise every time you get one. And I don't know, have you ever gotten a text message where you just feel like, oh, that's so nice that my friends remembered me today. And they said, hey, Anna, like, I hope you're going okay today. Or, oh, here's a funny video that I think you would like. Like, I love that. Yeah, me too. It make, it can just brighten your whole day if you receive a text message that gives you some sort of like positive and, you know, supportive information. So yeah, exactly. And so we wanted to see, you know, would sending text messages to women after they finish their breast cancer treatment, would that be helpful for them as well? And so I partnered with uh, Molly and some other breast cancer survivors and uh, a really broad team of nurses and surgeons and oncologists and dietitians physiotherapists, all these people came together to create this text message program that we called Empower SMS. And it sends really friendly and practical tips on how to stay healthy, how to keep up with your mental health, how to, you know, reach out and speak to your friends and family members if, um, if you need to, and how to reach out and get support when you need to after after your treatment. And so we ran a clinical trial and found that Receiving those messages really helped people with remembering to take their medications. They felt really supported by the messages. They actually really missed them when they were gone, which was so sweet. And they felt like it was, you know, a secret friend who was just sort of messaging them and knew exactly what they were going through, which if you've ever been through something horrible or traumatic in your life and somebody knows what you've been through it just makes all the difference doesn't it even if that's you know your friend or family member that you could speak to about it it's such an important part of recovery that I think we don't focus on enough yeah 100 percent. and I think you know I, I know I was lucky enough to work with Anna on this project and you know got to speak to these women after they had received the messages and just sometimes hearing what they had to say and how much like something as simple as a text message had just brightened their whole day and made them feel and remember to focus on themselves um it was just amazing and you really got that sense of like I'm actually helping people yeah, exactly. And yeah, just seeing the immediate impact just keeps me so driven and passionate about it. Maybe you want to tell people what happened actually during the COVID pandemic and how we did scale it up or we did share it with everyone in Australia. Yeah, so during COVID 2020, March 2020, the lockdown started in Australia and Anna and I were kind of sitting there and we're going, how are we going to keep doing our research? Like this is, you know, a big challenge for us. Because the breast cancer clinics were all closing down. They weren't allowing anyone into the clinics. All the support groups, um, this was before Zoom. This was before Mm -hmm. any of that. So they were all shut down and people didn't have any support at all. So we thought how we have this amazing program, you know, how can we get it to people so that they don't feel so alone? Yeah, and so we very quickly sort of revised it to make sure that everything was COVID safe. So, you know, any exercise tips were to do, you know, at home workouts and giving them ideas for that sort of thing. Um, And, you know, a lot of the messages originally sort of talked about um, hanging out with or meeting up with family or friends and, you know, using them for support, but talking about that in a really COVID safe way. So either to, you know, have a phone call or a Zoom chat or FaceTime instead. 
And we, you know, promoted it on social media and we had 850 people, Anna, sign up. Is that correct? Yes. We had the McGraw Foundation giving it to their breast care nurses. We had the Breast Cancer Network Australia putting it in their um, newsletters. We had the National Breast Cancer Foundation Register for program sending it to all these women who had signed up. And within, what, six, seven months, we had 850 people in the program. Um, We were getting all of this incredible feedback once again that people were feeling supported and even people in rural and remote communities communities were saying, you know, I don't have much support around me, but these messages made me feel seen. They made me feel remembered. And they reminded me that I need to take care of myself as well. Because I think a big thing is people are always thinking about, I need to take care of my family. I need to, you know, check in on my friends. But the, the messages also remind people, you need to take a moment and, and th- you know, take care of your own health as well. So I think that was really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think during a time like, you know, we were going through at the time and everyone was sort of in the same position, but it was especially hard for breast cancer survivors because they were, you know, at a little bit increased risk at the time and, you know, not having their usual care. So to be able to offer them something that would be so helpful and so supportive to them, um, it kind of just seemed like a no brainer to us. And yeah, I'm so glad that we did that. And (laughs) Um, yes, and so glad um, Julie Julie Redfern was so supportive of us and um, helping us get it together and get it out um, to everyone. And she, yeah, paid for it through her strategic research funds, which was absolutely amazing. amazing. Yeah, and we also sent messages to people with lung disease. Yeah, yeah, we did. So Anna and I again worked on another study which was very similar and. Um, I guess people with lung disease, of course, during the COVID pandemic were, you know, a super high risk group um, being already compromised and then having all these issues to deal with on top of that. It just, again, seemed like a no brainer to offer this support. And again, they people with lung disease often attend a rehabilitation service where they would go and get information and do exercise in a group setting. And obviously that was all stopped as well. So we had the opportunity to deliver some support to them during the pandemic. And again, like the feedback that we got through that was just absolutely incredible and being able to offer them support during that time. And it was amazing to see Lung Foundation Australia had our program on their website, Um, Health New South Wales, actually put it out as one of their key strategies for supporting people with lung disease and had a link um, to any clinicians who wanted to give it to their patients. So it was absolutely an amazing experience and something that we both of these programs were really hoping that we can continue them. Two hospitals are now going to be offering it to their patients as part of usual care, the Westmead Breast Cancer Institute and Lakeview Private Hospital. So that's such an exciting start and hopefully we can expand it so that everyone in Australia has the opportunity to get it. Um, But I guess a big problem in research is is having the funding to continue these programs on. So, you know, we're always needing um, some support and we need to put put a different hat on than our research hat and try to figure out how, you know, how do we get this extra funding to keep these programs going? But you know what? I want to hear about what your research is. 
I guess I started working with Anna on her breast cancer project and at the same time I was working with Dr Stephanie Partridge uh, on a program called Text Bites which is a text message program again so very similar sort of style to uh, what has previously been described Um, but we were focusing on adolescents who were above a healthy weight and you know providing them information and advice and support um, about living a healthy lifestyle through diet and physical activity. And I think these messages are very unique because they were so fun and very funny and um, just the wording of them was quite different. It was very geared toward towards adolescence and I don't know I would like to receive messages like that they're a bit more funny and gave you fun facts and all that stuff. Yeah absolutely so again we you know had some young people come in to help us design the program and that was something that they really valued was um, you know having messages that were a bit of bit of fun very like positive and supportive and um, you know again we're just trying to get young people to focus on themselves and living a healthier lifestyle but I guess one of the big problems that we had was um, trying to recruit or like get these young people into our study and we advertise on social media for this study and we've had over 1200 expressions of interest for the study but you know we just don't seem to be reaching the right people and I kind of looked at this and I said there are all of these young people who are wanting support. Like there are all of these young people who, you know, are wanting to receive something. And for young people, there's just really nothing out there that is accessible to them that they can sort of get on an everyday basis to be able to help them with their health. And I suppose as well as a young person, you don't really think about all these sort of things, but you know, it is really important because if we don't establish these like good behaviors when they're younger, they're going to carry these poorer health behaviors throughout their life and, you know, just leading to bigger problems when they become adults. And another thing what um, you and Stephanie found in some of your research is, and I was involved as well, but um, was that the information online sometimes is not accurate. It's not of high quality. Um And I guess the danger is that there's a lot of influencers out there who we see all the time on social media. People end up trusting what they say, but a lot of their information isn't actually based in science. So that's that's a big problem. If we have a large group of adolescents who are sort of following these people who they trust that their information is true when it's actually not aligning with what the science shows. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a huge issue because, I mean, young people spend so much time online, you know. So do I. I know. So does everyone, really. But (laughs) we all do. I mean, like, they are online every single day. They use social media every day. They're being fed this information and they don't even realize it. So, yeah, I guess that's one of the problems that we've seen is um, we did this research study and young people were talking about how they look for health information online. And we saw that across social media, they're just being fed this information and they don't even realize it in sort of a really passive way. They say, oh, yeah, everything that I want to know, it sort of just comes to me because, you know, Instagram and TikTok, it's so customized. All the algorithms, yeah. Exactly. And so I know it's one of those problems that stay tuned because we'll come up with a solution one day. But it's still one of those things that 
um, you know, we're trying to solve at the moment. Yeah, I guess that sort of comes to where my PhD research has led me. Yeah, I'm in my first year of my PhD now, um, very much inspired by, you know, Steph and Anna and seeing the amazing work that they do. And I thought, oh, no, I, I can definitely do this. I can be a researcher. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, my PhD project is called Health for Me, and we are developing and testing a healthy lifestyle text message program for all young people. So it's not specific to those who are above a healthy weight. And trying to see whether this sort of program can help improve young people's health behaviours, and that's across physical health and mental health. So, yeah, stay tuned. We've got lots more coming. (laughs) I'm so excited to hear about the results. And I'm also so excited that your research is sort of led by this Happy Us um, Adolescent Youth Advisory Committee. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Late last year, we um, advertised on social media that we wanted to uh, start this youth advisory group. And we had so many amazing applications from these young people, like who wanted to be involved. And so we selected 16 young people who are aged between 13 and 18. And they inform all of our research. So we chat with them on a monthly basis and get to hear their thoughts on what the top issues that young people have to deal with these days. At the moment, they're helping us to, to like design the text messages, which is just awesome. So what topics have come up so far. Like what are they say, telling you that they're really passionate about? Yeah, so I guess like it's a lot of things that we have also found. So I guess physical activity is a huge one. Yeah, one of the big things we've found is that the impacts that COVID has had on these young people as well, it has just been huge. And it's sort of Mm -hmm. one of the threads that like underpins everything that they talk about in terms of diet and the food industry, marketing to young people and online food delivery has been a huge one as well. Yeah. A lot of hear a little bit about that in our um, episode with CCGA, who is specifically studying um, the impacts of online food delivery on young people, which is fascinating. So fascinating. And yeah, I guess a lot of it comes down to um, social media and body image and sort of what's being portrayed as healthy and is it actually healthy? Uh, It's just, it's so complex and there's so much going on. So yeah, being able to design something with them that will help them to improve their health and tackles the issues that they see on an everyday basis, I think is just amazing and so important. And yeah, we really couldn't do it without them. That is so amazing. Yeah, I think Research is really moving towards this idea of you have to have whatever population you are studying, they have to be involved in designing your research or else there's no point because that's who you're ultimately trying to help. And if you don't know what they want and what they need, you know, your research isn't going to end up helping. (laughs) I mean, it may or may, you know, on the off chance it does, but a lot of the time, it might not. Yeah. So having people actively involved from the very beginning and sort of guiding what your research is and how it's going to go is so important. I think there's a lot of work that, you know, Anna and I are doing in the background. And I suppose our projects uh, are both in this sort of digital health space. And yeah, it's very exciting to have that and be able to move it forward. And I guess you guys can follow us on Twitter to see our research as it comes out. One of the other things that 
we talk to our guests about Anna is, you know, their peak and pit. What they find is the best and worst part about being a researcher. So for you, what's the best part? The best part by far is seeing the direct positive impact I'm having in people's lives. I did not realize how much um, a simple text message could really change someone's outlook on on their recovery and how much it could really help. And it's been just an absolutely amazing experience. And especially having my best friend involved in the project the whole time, it was just so meaningful. She's a co-author on my papers and oh, just, it, yeah, it gives me the warm fuzzies just thinking about such a positive impact we're having. What's yeah. your best part? I think mine would have to be similar is, you know, seeing the impacts directly, being able to talk to people that have taken part in your research and hearing them say, I never thought that, you know, a simple text message would be as impactful as it has been. And I've heard it from, you know, all different people that I've worked with, from people with heart disease, lung disease, cancer, young people. It's sort of this universal experience that And of course, it's not for everyone, but, you know, for the people that you can help, it's just amazing to hear that what I'm doing is helping people. And I suppose at the crux of it, that's always what I wanted to do. So it's really warm and fuzzies is like the best way to describe it. (laughs) I think so too. Oh my gosh. Okay. And what is your pit? What's the worst pit? Oh, I think, and it's not so much of a pit, I guess, like, having to be resilient all the time I guess there's so much that we do um as researchers you know we have to apply for funding all the time and not everything works out and I suppose being resilient and knowing what to do when things don't work out and I guess for me a, a big part of that is having such an amazing and supportive team around us be able to cry with you when things don't go well and also smile with you when things go really well. So yeah. Um, yeah. But being resilient, it's, it's not such a bad thing, but it's a great skill to learn as well. It's definitely a good life lesson, how to manage rejection, how to manage constructive feedback, definitely from different, a whole range of different people uh, is so important. But I definitely think that's another one of my peaks is our incredibly supportive team. Our team is just absolutely incredible and really, really help us. Anna, what about for you? What's your pit? What's the worst part of being a researcher? I think the sheer volume of work and because there's so many projects, I know we've described one of our projects that we each do, but we actually probably at any given time have 10 projects going on, collaborating with different people, um, applying to go to different conferences and doing presentations and writing papers, trying to keep that straight in my mind and not get overwhelmed by the long list of things I have to do that never seem to get done. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm much better at it now. But when I first started my PhD, I remember, yeah, one day, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had a total panic attack. It was not good at all. But since then, I've learned to manage it, I think, a little bit better. You know, you can only do what you can do. And setting out clear goals for each day is really helpful. Um, So there definitely are some ways and strategies now. And I think that that's something that, you know, just talking to other people about it, you know, we do, we do a lot of different projects at one time. And I suppose, you know, having that 
idea of like, okay, what needs to be done first? Like that's that's the most yeah. important. You got to get that thing done. I guess it is hard. I I definitely do understand and I sympathize exactly with you because yeah, there's days when you just go, I can't do this. It's too much. <laughs> yeah, I can't do it. No, exactly. <laughs> well. I am so excited for everyone to hear the episodes that we have coming up. We have such a range of researchers who you're going to meet. We have people who are researching the brain and how we can stop cancer from growing. We have people who are studying migration patterns of insects and how they pollinate different areas and how that helps us as humans. Yeah, and we also have research um, from people who are working in psychology, who are looking into bowel cancer survivorship. And we also have uh, an occupational therapist who is talking about her experience working and being from a historically marginalized group. So, you know, there is some really exciting researchers coming on the podcast this season, and we are so excited for you all to hear them. And to hear about you know, the past of where they've all come from. We've had uh, national tennis players and international gymnasts who have turned into researchers. Um, So it's so cool to hear their research journey as well and how they got here. So if you want to stay tuned and listen to our podcast week after week, we do put out new episodes every Thursday. We will advertise them on Twitter at Done the Research. You can follow me at Dr. Anna Singleton or Beck at at Rebecca Rayside on Twitter. We'll also have a website linked in there um, where you can receive all episodes and they all the episodes will be available on all uh, your listening platforms we are so excited to bring them to you and yeah stay tuned every thursday to hear from us <laughs>